I do confess that I am feeling so clean this morning. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26 will be our text this morning. Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. I invite you to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When to build a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujalel, and Mahujalel fathered Methushalel, and Methushalel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of all those who dwell in tents and livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Daama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemix is 77-fold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you hear our prayer because we find ourselves this morning cleansed and standing in the person of your beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we confidently ask that you would help us this morning, that you would give us soft and supple hearts to receive your word, that you would help us to understand it, that you would help us to live in light of it. By your spirit, would you work in such a way that you are glorified and in such a way that we are conformed into the image of your beloved son. Do this through the preaching of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, we live in a world of division. We're often divided in our homes. We're often divided in our communities in our cities, in our states, in our nation, and in the nations. And generally speaking, we favor and gather with those whom we perceive to be similar to us, 
Conversely, we dislike and disperse from those whom we perceive to be dissimilar to us. As it goes, the greater degree of similarity between one another, the greater degree of affinity for one another. And again, conversely, the greater degree of dissimilarity between one another, the greater degree of aversion to one another. For example, Baltimore Ravens fans like Baltimore Ravens fans. If I were in a room with Pittsburgh Steelers fans, I may have some difficulty liking them. If all I know about you is that you're a Ravens fan, then I like you. And if all I know about you is that you're a Steelers fan, well then, I'll pray for you. (laughs) However, if I find out that you are a Steelers fan, who's also a Christian, that's an instant game changer. We will have fellowship, having been chosen by God, having been purchased by the blood of his son, and having been bound by his spirit, we will walk arm in arm into glory. Or let's make this a little bit closer to home. Los Angeles Lakers fans like Los Angeles Lakers fans. And they tend to dislike Celtic fans and Los Angeles Clipper fans. If all I know about you is you're a Lakers fan, I like you. If all I know about you is you're a Celtics or a Clippers fan, well, then I'll pray for you. But if I find out that you're a Christian who's a Celtic or a Clippers fan, you know how the rest goes. This silly illustration conveys the reality that we constantly experience division in our world. Furthermore, it displays the the fact that one's tendency to divide over some matters can often be swayed by other matters of weightier significance. That said, we understand, or at least we should understand, that sports should have very little, if any, bearing in determining if and assessing how we divide with others. Nevertheless, every year people are often beaten and sometimes killed in relation to the sports team that they choose. What does that indicate for us? That indicates for us that there is a deeper reality behind our divisions. Certainly there are issues, both practical and conceptual, that we must divide over, that are worthy to divide over. We, as biblical Christians, will divide over biblical truth. We must graciously stand stand firm for the truth, regardless of what others think or say, whatever the cost may be. Moreover, we understand that there are issues of conscience that one may have to divide with others over. But know this, the divisions that we as the human race experience now, are not natural. Rather, our experience of division in this world was brought about when the serpent tempted Eve and when our first parents sinned, which resulted in a divided relationship with God and a divided relationship with one another. And as a response to sin, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord spoke to the serpent 
And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In making this statement, the Lord foretold of two lines, of two kinds of people under one human race. There would be a line who would remain under the influence of Satan. We would call these the children of Satan. However, God in his grace and by his grace would produce a line that would be his children, a godly line within this human race. God, again speaking to the serpent, continuing in chapter 3, verse 15, said, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there would be a singular seed within the godly offspring or godly line from the woman who would be victorious over Satan and his realm. Amen? And it's ultimately by and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that Satan and his children are defeated. And oh, the glorious day that is certain when the godly will be everlastingly established. And it is in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis where the reality of this division in the human race begins to crystallize. Cain, a child of Satan, kills his physical brother, Abel, a child of God. Cain is then banished from the presence of the Lord. The establishment of the ungodly and the godly lines of the human race is where we pick up today. The genealogies presented to us at the end of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 shows us that there is indeed enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Furthermore, these genealogies begin to trace God's faithfulness to his promise. His promise of a singular seed who will come through the offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Beloved, this is the one division that trumps all other divisions. This division should influence and inform every other division, yet it is this division that is far superior to any other. This division between the godless and the godly calls us to think soberly and intentionally and carefully about how we tread upon this earth. So my friends, please hear me. Hold loosely to your preferences and opinions and tightly grasp the reality of this one division. The division between the godless and the godly. The ungodly are divided from the godly and vice versa. And currently, as we exist on this world, both the godless and the godly occupy this earth. But a day is coming when all the ungodly will be everlastingly cast into the lake of fire and all the godly will dwell with God upon a new heaven and a new earth. This division cannot be any more serious. There is an impending and certain finality to this division. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26, serves as a microcosm of the divided human race, and it does that by displaying characteristic actions of the godless 
and then displaying characteristic actions of the godly. In other words, what our text does this morning is it provides a real historical situation that reveals typical features and behaviors of the ungodly and the godly. These deeds are not exhaustive, but they are customary. And what we're going to do this morning is we will observe six common behaviors of the godless, and then we will observe two common behaviors of the godly. So let's begin with the godless. We have to be clear here. I want to define what I mean by godless. By godless, I mean to identify those who are without God in the sense that they do not acknowledge God as the source and purpose of their life, and they therefore do not make it their aim to please God. Again, we have to be careful. There might be a temptation right now, in this moment, for you to say, I'm a Christian, I'm godly, therefore I'm not going to listen to the first half of this sermon. If you're truly a Christian, if you're truly resting in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're truly trusting in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is a sense in which you are godly, period. Because you are in Christ and his righteousness is positionally and truly yours. However, don't let that beautiful reality discourage you from considering if there is an area or areas in your life wherein you are functionally or practically ungodly. In other words, a Christian can behave in ungodly ways, but ultimately the Lord will not allow you to remain comfortable and consistent in that behavior. As a matter of fact, God often uses this setting. Sunday morning gathering, the proclamation of his word, to jar us back to the reality of who we are in Christ and therefore how we are to function accordingly. The bottom line is this, all hearing my voice, take the opportunity to consider each of the following behaviors of the godless to see if there is an area or areas that you need to repent of. That's being said, let's consider the behaviors of the godless. Behavior number one, the godless receive God's word without Sorry, the godless receive God's gifts without thanking him. And God's word is a gift, so that fits as well. Look with me at the beginning of verse 17. The text simply says Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. The text indicates that Cain was already married at this point, and apparently there were several humans upon the earth by this time. Earlier in chapter 4, Cain's fear of people taking revenge on him because of the murder of his brother in verses 14 and 15 suggests that there were many others born by this time. Furthermore, we see in Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 that Adam had lived 130 years when he had fathered Seth. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say during that 130 years, he probably bore more than three or four children. It's presumable that there were others born to Adam and Eve and to their offspring by this time. Nevertheless, our text focuses on Cain. Cain as the first human murderer and the progenitor of the ungodly line. Cain had relations with his wife, and she eventually had a baby boy named 
Enoch. And I don't want us to get confused here. This is not the, the good Enoch who walked with God and then was not, for God took him. That Enoch comes later in chapter 5. That Enoch is the Enoch of the godly line of Seth. But the point I want to make here is how Cain received the gift of a child. Children are a gift from the Lord, amen? We know that the Lord's blessing preceded his command. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them, and then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Psalm 127, verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And the Bible repeatedly re reveals that God is the one who both opens and closes the womb. Beloved, children are a gift from the Lord, and we should receive them with thanksgiving, knowing that apart from his blessing, the conception and bearing of a child is an absolute impossibility. But our text mentions nothing of an acknowledgement of God or an expression of thanks to him from Cain. And at first glance, this doesn't seem like much. You may be thinking to yourself even now, Kenny, you're making an argument from silence, and I will admit that I am. However, when an Old Testament narrative passage is comparing or contrasting individuals or groups of people, it is important for us to note both what the text does say and what the text does not say. In this case, Cain's silence screams at us when compared to what Eve says in chapter 4, verse 25. We're told in chapter 4, verse 25, that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, listen to the first words from her mouth, God has appointed. For Cain, there is no God-centered thanksgiving. There is no mention of God at all after receiving the gracious gift of a child from God. I get it. I understand it. I mean, if I were get to give you a gift and you didn't say thank you to me, I have to be humble because I realize that I can give bad gifts. But that's not the case with God. This is the sovereign Lord of all that we're talking about here, without whom we wouldn't even have life itself. This is the one from whom every good gift and every perfect gift comes down. And this is the customary action of the godless. The godless take from God, they receive from God, but they offer him no thanks. And this is exactly what Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, for although they, that's those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, aka the ungodly, for they knew God, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or what? or give thanks to him. This is the behavior of the godless. They don't thank God for his gift. Conversely, the godly acknowledge and thank God for his gifts. We are to look to God. We are to count our blessings. And we are to thank God. That's what the godly do. And we could go to numerous passages in the New Testament or we're explicitly commanded to give thanks. 
This brings us to behavior number two, the, the godless build for their name's sake. Continuing on in verse 17, the text says, when he had built a city, he built, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujalel, and Mahujalel fathered Methushalel, and Methushalel fathered Lamech. Here we see God's continued gift of children, and we also have the very first record of a human settlement, a human city. The concept of the city is going to become extremely important in the ancient Near East and our Old Testament context, and it will also be important in the Greco-Roman setting in the New Testament. Ultimately, we await for the city of God. Amen? And what we have in the Old Testament is oftentimes the names of cities or the names of places in the Old Testament recall a significant occurrence in that place or conveys a remembrance of the Lord or unto the Lord. But what we have here, we do not see a a name given to this city that signifies much other than self-centeredness. After not thanking God for Enoch, Cain then uses his God-given mind and his God-given body, and he takes God-given materials, and he builds this city, he builds this settlement, and he thinks to himself, hmm, a good name for this city is Enoch. Cain is seemingly living without much, if any, reference to God at all. And to show that this is a common feature of the ungodly, we really don't have to go that far. Remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. In Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, the text reads, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. We could understand one another. Verse 2, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain, a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Look at verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In that text, the people desire to make a name for themselves by building a city and building a tower to show that they are of prominence, to show that they have reached the pinnacle, to to say, look at us, we're really something special. We're, We're actually so special that if we do this, then we'll be established in immovable. And we know how the rest of the story goes. The Lord goes on to disband them and move them across the face of the earth. Beloved, the ungodly build and seek to establish a name for themselves, for their family, for their pursuits, without any reference to God whatsoever. And we have to ask ourselves now, Who am I making a name for? What's the desire that I have behind my 
job or behind my actions or behind my behaviors or behind my achievements. If you do anything noteworthy at all, if you build anything commendable at all, please remember that apart from God, you can do nothing. Any and every thing that we accomplish that has any measure of goodness to it is utterly impossible without God. The ungodly build for their namesake. Brothers and sisters, build for God's namesake. This brings us to behavior number three. The godless disregard God's design. Verse 19. And Limbic took two wives. The name of one was Ada, the name of the other, Zillah. The wicked Limic is the seventh from Adam through Cain. The righteous Enoch is the seventh from Adam through Seth. We see that in chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. And it is a possibility that these two men were contemporaries. But regardless if they were or if they were not, the two certainly display the dividing line between the ungodly and the godly line. I do also want to point out at this point that there is a, another Lamech in Genesis chapter 5. That Lamech is a righteous one, and he is the father of Noah. But nevertheless, we're dealing with the ungodly Lamech today. And Lamech disregarded God's design, how? By taking two wives. This verse provides us with the first instance of polygamy. Remember, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, after detailing the first wedding ceremony, God himself being the officiator, we have this line in chapter 2, verse 24, that tells what marriage ought to be like in God's economy. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus, in the Gospels, is going to say this exact verse as he talks about marriage and divorce. And Paul, in Ephesians 5, is going to use this exact verse as he talks about the mystery of marriage, and it really refers to Christ and the church. The biblical concept of marriage is one man and one woman until death do them part. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Amen? Amen? And what God has joined together, let no man add to. Amen? Amen? Now, we have to deal with an issue here. Many argue that polygamy was, or even is, permissible or even good because the patriarchs and others like David had multiple wives. And this is actually an argument that you will hear from Muslims. This is why they're allowed to marry up to four women. So we got to be honest. It is true that the Bible does not explicitly condemn the patriarchs for having multiple wives. That's a true statement. But it is also true that the Bible does not prescribe multiple wives. As a matter of fact, the Bible prescribes repeatedly that if a man, to, that if a man is to marry, he is to marry 
one wife. It seems to me that the Bible records Lamech's taking of two wives as first a departure from God's standard and also as an introduction to what would eventually become the norm in the ancient Near East. Just because a man had multiple wives and the word of God does not explicitly condemn it does not mean that it upholds it or prescribes it. So don't think that having multiple wives is permissible by God. Especially when, this is what baffles me, especially when God is so clearly declares his design for marriage over and over again throughout his word. A man and a woman becoming one flesh. The, the narratives of the Bible, both the Old Testament narratives and the New Testament narratives, tell us what happened. They tell us what happened, which does not necessarily mean that's what should have happened according to God's moral will. Moreover, if one is to keep on reading, we'll see this as we work our way through the book of Genesis, and we'll see this as we just read through our Bibles. As we keep on reading, it will become apparent that polygamy results in problems. Amen? I like what Derek Kidner says of this. He says, the attempt to improve on God's marriage ordinance sets a disastrous precedent on which the rest of Genesis is common enough. Or Kenneth Matthew says this, in Mosaic law, it was assumed that polygamy produced troubling home life. And then he cites Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. Beloved, the Bible is clear. God gives clear instructions on marriage, and when people stray from that instruction, problems ensue. That's the way that it is. And what the ungodly do is they characteristically disregard God's design. And we can say, yeah, amen to that. But we need to be careful. Because if God's people aren't careful, if God's people do not interpret everything, I mean everything, through the lens of this book, then what happens is we can reason and then surmise and then justify disregarding God's designs ourselves. This leads us to behavior number four. The godless exploit common grace. Picking it up in verse 20, Adabor, Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. We see God's sustained showering of grace and that the ungodly continue to bear children. But now what we see is even more grace, that which is commonly referred to as common grace. And common grace is simply the idea that God bestows favor upon all people in that they experience widespread blessings from God, whether they acknowledge such blessings are from God or not. I want to be clear, common grace is not saving grace. We can't equate the two. But common grace is grace from God that allows all people at all times 
in all places to receive benefits from the Lord. Psalm 151 teaches that, and perhaps the most famous passage that teaches this concept of common grace is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, when Jesus says, for he, referring to God the Father, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And in our passage, back in Genesis, we continue to see God's common grace in that Lamech fathered children who made massive contributions to societal advancements and prosperity. And this is just a side note. One of the many reasons that I love the Bible, that I, I, I read it and I grow in my belief that it is utterly true, every jot and tittle, is this. It's the complexity. Here we are. We're in the middle of the godless progeny of Cain. And if a mere man were to write this story, it is unlikely anything good would be said of Cain or his ungodly line. But here we see God's spirit inspiring the text allows us to see God's goodness to all men and for all men, even the wicked. Once again, I like what Kidner says here. He says, and I quote, the phrase, he was the father of all such, he was the father of all such, acknowledges the debt and prepares us to accept for ourselves a similar indebtedness to secular enterprise. For the Bible nowhere teaches that the godly should have all the gifts. At the same time, listen carefully, this is solid gold. At the same time, we are saved from overvaluing these skills. The family of Lamech could handle its environment, but not itself, end quote. In this text, we see tents and livestock. We see musical instruments. What a blessing. Do you enjoy having a place to live? Do you enjoy eating a steak every once in a while? If not, talk to me afterwards. Do you enjoy listening to, to music and singing praises and that there's guys who help us as we sing our praises to God and lead through song and instruments? Yes, those are blessings. But we see more than that. We also see instruments of metal. These instruments were probably broader than weapons of war, but they certainly included weapons of war which is seemingly what Lemek would use to execute a murder based on the flow of the text. Both the prophets Isaiah and Micah speak of a future time wherein weapons of war will be turned into instruments of agriculture. agriculture. But in our text, we have the exact opposite. Once again, Cain's family is a microcosm of the twisted mind of man after the fall, taking the goodness of God, taking the gifts of God, uh, making contributions, but ultimately those contributions being used to make that which mars and hurts those created in the image of God. The godless exploit common grace by using their God-given talents to devise plans of evil and destruction. This brings us to behavior number five, the godless boast of their sin. The godless boast of their sin. Look at verse 23. 
Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Lamech's words to his wives are a clear picture of the progression of sin. And that progression will continue as we work our way through Genesis. Later in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, God will detail what's known as the lex talionis, the law of retaliation, which indicates that a, pun that a punishment sh must fit the crime that was committed, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But here, Lamech boasts in the murder of a young man for merely striking him. The Hebrew word translated kill means to slay or to slaughter, and it is the same word used for Cain's killing of Abel. We could say like father, like son. And ultimately, Scripture says that Satan himself is a murderer from the beginning. And we know that these men are the offspring of the serpent. And I just want us to get this picture right so, so we can understand what's going on here. God has blessed this family with child after child. He has caused them to be prosperous and affluent. I mean, Lamech's family would have been the talk of the town. Lamech could sit around with his buddies as he aged and brag about his children. Not that any of you know anything about that. You can almost hear it. Well, little Jubal, he's doing pretty well. He has a booming farming business and housing business. And now, now Jabal, he's gone on to do some pretty big things. He's making that good music in the center of town. As a matter of fact, he's actually selling instruments with his own name on them. And Tubal Cain, he's a late bloomer. I was worried about him for a while. But you're not going to believe this. He was digging around one day, and he found some hard stuff in the ground. And he up, ended up making a whole bunch of tools and, and weapons of it. As a matter of fact, we call this a sword. This is the context. An ungodly family dripping with the common grace of God that Lamech goes out and slays the son of another. And what he does next almost unbelievable. He walks in, not to sing a song to his wife, but to sing a song to his wives, a song of boasting. Boasting to his wives about his wicked deeds. He says, listen to me as I tell you of my great success of murder today. This is what the godless do. This is what I once did. We boast of our sin. We, we live without any reference to God. And we think we should be applauded for it. The godless sin, and they are proud of it. They, they live lives full of sin, and they are proud about it, such that they boast about it. But more than that, this leads to behavior number six. The godless then make demands. Verse 24 says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Though Cain was evil, 
And though Cain did not do well and fell to the sin that was crouching at the door, Lamech glories in his sin of murder. We remember that after having killed his brother Abel, Cain, in fear of his own life, desired some kind of protection. He was concerned about what might happen to him. He says in verse 14, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. This is Cain speaking to to the Lord. He says, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain's response certainly shows a lack of repentance over his sin. It certainly shows shows a deep-seated self-centeredness. All he's worried about after having murdered his brother is himself, that he might be protected. However, Lamech does not seek protection and fear at all. Rather, he makes demands and arrogance. If Cain has a sevenfold protection, then I demand a greater leniency, and I demand a greater protection of 77-fold. Beloved, the godly don't do this. The godly, in response to their sin, say to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But the ungodly sin, and then they boast, and then make demands which show they have no remorse for their sin, no awareness of their sin, and no acknowledgement of God. These are the six customary behaviors of the godless, of the ungodly. They receive God's gifts without thanking him. They build for their name's sake. They disregard God's design. They exploit common grace. They boast of their sin, and they make demands. Is there any area or areas of sin that you need to turn from this morning and turn to the Lord. I would invite you to do so even now. Now it's time for us to consider the godly. I love the simplicity of this text. Six things that the ungodly do. They're busy in their sin. They're doing a lot of stuff, one after another after another, contrasted by two very simple things that the godly do. Again, I want to be careful here and define what I mean by godly. By the term godly, I mean to identify those who are with God in the sense that they acknowledge God as the source and purpose of their life, and therefore make it their aim to please God. Exact opposite of the godless. And like before, we need to even be more careful. The godly are not yet perfect. However, the godly know that they are not yet perfect. Amen? However, they truly trust and rest in the perfect person, the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ, such that it gives them confidence to press on toward the goal which lies ahead. Because the godly look outside themselves and look to God himself as their ultimate purpose, they increasingly walk with God such that their external behaviors are manifestly and increasingly a result of their internal and intimate relationship 
with God. Bottom line is this. Friends, godliness is not a matter of mere external deeds. Rather, true godliness is made manifest outwardly as a result of God's internal work and those who are his. That being said, let's consider the behaviors of the godly. Behavior number one, the godly trust God and his word or his promises. Look at verse 25 with me. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Seth means appointing. Both in the name of her son and in the first words from her lift after having him, Eve's faith is crystal clear. Remember in chapter 4, verse 1, she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And some people understand that I have gotten a man, even the Lord. And Jeff walked through that with us and said, this could be her leaning on this idea that the promise of Genesis chapter 3, 15 has now come. But in our text, she reemphasizes that her hope remains in the promise uttered in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is not just a son, it is another son. And this is not just another son, but it is a son instead of Abel. Abel was the one who was found pleasing to God, and now Eve is hoping that this new son would be the one to father in his late brother's footsteps, such that the promise of Genesis 3.15 could come to fruition. Would this son, Seth, be the one to crush the head of the serpent? Perhaps. Eve's not sure in that moment. But her hope and her trust is in that word from God. It is in that promise from God. Hear me, please. Despite her circumstances, despite being banished from the garden, despite the hardship of childbearing, despite now living upon a ground that is cursed, despite the tragedy, the utter, the utter tragedy of losing her son through murder by her other son, despite the trials and the tribulations, her trust is in the Lord and his word. Oh, would that be the case for redeemed self Bay? The Lord said that there would be enmity between the serpent and the woman. He said that there would be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the woman. Therefore, Eve is not caught off guard when she experiences these hardships. She's not surprised by them. She understands that she's in a war. But rather, in the midst of those circumstances... She does not just remember some of what God says. In this case, she remembers the promise of that singular seed from her offspring who will crush the head of the serpent, such that she's expectantly awaiting it. Is this the one? Is this the fulfillment of the promise? Beloved, the godly trust God. And therefore, they remember and trust his word. They know that his promises are sure, and so they trust and expectantly rest upon them in the good times as well as the bad times. 
Who and what are you trusting? Who and what are you trusting? This brings us to the second behavior of the godly, and the second behavior of the godly stems from the first. We have to catch that. The second behavior of the godly stems from, arises from the first. Because the godly trust God in his word, because the godly trust God in his promises, they then do what? Behavior number two, they call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 26 says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. By the grace of God, and according to his promise, in the line of Seth, there would be faith. In the midst of a godless society, people began to call upon or to proclaim, could be translated either way, the name of the Lord. Beloved, when God makes promises, when God communicates promises, and we, as his people, are not experiencing those promises, the people of God have always done one thing, which is they call upon the name of the Lord. You show me people who acknowledge God as the source and purpose of their life in any period of human history, and I will show you people who call upon the name of the Lord. Our experiences, your experiences, today and tomorrow and yesterday, they scream at you, don't they? They scream at you, something is not right. By the grace of God, we first realized that something was not right in us. And so what, what did we do? By the grace of God, through the proclamation or reading of his word, we called upon the name of the Lord. We confess there's something not right in me, oh God. I know it, I sense it. I'm a sinner. And I need you to change me from the inside out. And then as God caused us to gaze upon his son and to believe upon his son and to trust his son, we started to realize something else, didn't we? I'm not fitting in like I used to. As we became strangers of this world, we increasingly realized that things are not right all around us. And so what do we do? We call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, I believe you. Lord, I trust your promises. Lord, your word says that this is not how it should be. Your word says that there's going to be an end to this. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Right the wrong that is all around us and all in us. And so when we are tired of our sin, and when we're fed up with the darkness in us and around us, we cry out, and we call upon his name, and we proclaim his name to others, and we do that trusting and knowing that he will certainly cause his promises to come to fruition. So saints, take heart. Take hold of his word and be patient and be prayerful because he will 
fulfill each and every one of his promises. We don't know when, but we certainly know that he will. Trust God. Trust his word. And call upon his name. This is what the godly do. In conclusion, beloved, the dividing line is clear. The greatest division of all is between those who are godly and those who are ungodly. But I just have to remind you, and you have to know this, that we are all inherently ungodly. Such that we might not look down our noses at those who are doing deeds that we once did. We are all inherently ungodly. Before the grace of God go I. There is nothing, I I love what Noah had to say this morning, there is nothing that we bring to the table in and of ourselves, but rather the grace of God captures us, that we behold God as he truly is, and we live in light of the truth increasingly. We're inherently ungodly, but in Christ and in Christ alone, God converts, God converts ungodly Kenny to godly Kenny. And ungodly Kevin to godly Kevin. And each and every one of you who are trusting in the person to work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's at work in you. And he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, in Christ, God delivers the ungodly from the domain of darkness and transfers us, transfers us into the kingdom of of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, such that the ungodly become godly. All because the son of God was treated as if he were ungodly himself instead of those who would call upon his name. If you've heard my voice this morning and by the grace of God, you've realized that you're not in Christ. Say my behavior is my conduct, my heart, aligns far more with the ungodly than it does the godly. I have a question for you. Do you want to become godly this morning? Then I would simply say this. Look outside yourself to the one who loves to save ungodly sinners. Look outside yourselves and your deeds and your works and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him. Fix your eyes upon him, love him, savor him, delight delight in him, hear him, obey him, and boast in him and him alone. By the grace of God, you will become godly and grow in godliness. All for his glory's sake and all by his grace. Father, we thank you for your word, which is truth. We ask that you would sanctify us by the truth. We thank you for the clear division that there is indeed those who are ungodly and those who are godly. Lord, help us. Help us to understand that and live in light of that reality. Help us to proclaim the goodness of the Lord. Help us to call upon the name of the Lord. Help us to increasingly trust you and your word, O God. Help us to be faithful. I do pray for those who are in my hearing who have not trusted in you. 
even now, would you stir in their hearts in such a way that they can identify that they are sinners? That they're sinners, that they've said things and done things and thought things that they ought not and that it's against you. That they were created for you, that you are the source and purpose of human life, yet we in our sin disregard you and rebel against you. Oh, but Lord, would they see that you offer such forgiveness in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you grant them rest in Christ according to your perfect will? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.